Well, it is the end of the year. This is traditionally the Sunday after Christmas is one of the, uh, the Sunday after Christmas, the Sunday after Easter, traditionally the two smallest Sundays of the year. And uh, we apparently are not breaking the tradition. Um, so, but I'm glad you're here. I'm glad folks are uh, watching online. And uh, I hope that as we go through the life of Jesus, uh, that we all not only learn something, but are drawn more uh, to him. So, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Here, Matthew, Mark, Luke. We'll be in chapter 2, verses 21 to 38. This is the story of Simeon and Anna. And uh, it's kind of an amazing story. So turn there in your Bibles, or scroll down as the need may be. And let's listen carefully, as always, this is God's Word. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scripture and making us your people. You've brought us to the gospel of Luke this morning to experience this epic drama of Jesus together. Sometimes we take the Christmas story for granted, keep us from being jaded or 
complacent about the coming of Christ. This Christmas season, we pray that you would give us understanding. Help us to see what you have done and what you will do. Help us to be amazed. Help us to wait and help us to wonder. And so, Lord, once again, teach us what to believe. Teach us how to live. Build our faith. Draw us near. And help us learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through these words of this gospel today. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus as we spend this year walking with him. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. A few weeks ago, I was uh, reading an email from the pastor of Chapelgate Presbyterian Church up near Baltimore, Mike Kanjin, who has been here about 10 years ago. He preached here. And uh, he shared a fascinating story about one of the other pastors on his staff. He's got quite a number. It's a large church. But he wrote, for years, we have had the privilege of a Korean pastor on staff. His name is Tai, and he translates our sermon manuscripts into Korean and other languages. Following worship each Sunday, he leads our internationals, sifting through the messages, the nuanced language, the humor, all of it, to discuss God's grace. He is amazing, and his effect has been transformational. His 100-year-old mother lives in South Korea, and from time to time, when she becomes ill, he flies over to visit with her and the rest of his family. This year, when he returned to Maryland, we observed that he had dyed his hair from gray to jet black, and he cut it much shorter than he normally keeps it. In short, he was initially unrecognizable. We chalked it up to a shameless attempt to look younger, behind his back, of course. But in our staff meeting, he brought it up, and he told us his mother doesn't recognize people at this point. So he decided to make himself look like he would have looked to her 30 years ago, and it worked. This woman, who had been lost in the fog of dementia, came alive and celebrated her son and family. I love that story. I think that's amazing. <clears throat> what a wonderful way to honor an elderly parent. As we saw in Timothy and Titus <clears throat> this fall, there's a great emphasis in the Bible on the necessity for honoring the older saints among us. And we've come through Advent, and now we see that principle at work here in Luke 1 and 2. You ever wonder why is it that Elizabeth, Zechariah, Simeon, and Anna are all so very old? Why did God ordain that the parents of the last prophet be elderly and the parents of the Messiah be so much younger? Why are the two witnesses, Simeon and Anna, on the point of death when they see Jesus and testify about him. The questions arise not just out of curiosity, but because in each case, Luke himself seems to stress their age. 
And there's a couple of clues that suggest some reasons for this. First, in all four cases, these older folks are presented as devout and godly saints. In the case of Elizabeth and Zechariah, Luke stressed, Luke 1, verse 6, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. In the case of Simeon and Anna, our text for today, Luke stresses they're devout temple goers and they cherish the hope of the Old Testament prophets. Simeon, he says, verse 25, this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. We sang about that earlier in that song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Two of the lines are taken straight from this text. And Anna, in verse 38, is waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. In other words, these are model Old Testament saints who kept the law of Moses and looked with eagerness towards the hope of the prophets. The second clue, I think, as to why it's older people who welcome Jesus into the world comes to us from much later in Luke, in chapter 16, where Jesus says, the law and the prophets were until John, since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. Luke is the only gospel writer that records that saying of Jesus. So we can see that it's significant for him. Up until John the Baptist's coming, the word and the rule of God has been proclaimed through the law and the prophets. But now with the arrival of Jesus, the king, and his forerunner, John the Baptist, the word and rule of God is proclaimed and encountered in a new way. We saw a couple weeks ago in John 1 that Jesus is the word, and before that in Luke 1 that Jesus is the king. The long-awaited kingdom has now arrived, at least partially. And for those who believe in Jesus, a tremendous shift has occurred. No longer do we live in, an, in the era of uh, promise of the law and the prophets, awaiting the consolation of Israel. Now we live in the era of fulfillment, when the kingdom of God is preached as present and powerful although not yet finished or consummated. So with those two clues uh, as my guide, I suggest that Luke is illustrating two things by showing us these four aged Old Testament saints. First, I think he wants us to see that one error is drawing to a close, the error of the law and the prophets. He shows us by depicting the best representatives of that error as aged and at the point of death. They are passing away just like the error of the law and the prophets. The second thing Luke wants to illustrate is that there is no conflict between the law and the prophets and this new age of the Messiah. And he shows us that by depicting the most devout people under the old era as the most receptive to the new era. Elizabeth and Zechariah and Simeon and Anna, they don't become resentful and angry uh, that the Messiah has come, not even that he will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles, but they rejoice that the new has come. 
So Luke prepares us in this way for important issues to come. Uh, with Jesus comes a new age and a new message uh, among the Jewish people. The old era of the law and the prophets is passing away. And he says, behold, the new has come. Nevertheless, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to complete them, to fulfill them by purchasing the redemption they offered and living the life they commanded. And therefore, all the true saints of the Old Testament will welcome Jesus with open arms because he perfectly fits as the high point of their faith. But the hypocrites will reject him and persecute him. And we see such saints in today's passage. Something is happening here. Great prophecies are given to Joseph and Mary, but they don't uh, know just how these prophecies are going to play out. We know because we have the perspective of time. But Joseph and Mary have a long way ahead of them. And so today in this passage, we're going to see they have something to learn from two people who know what a long wait really is. We pick up the story in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. We have a shift from old to new here as well. So far in the story, we've seen the work of God revealed in somewhat ordinary lives. Clearly, the birth of Christ has inaugurated something new, a new covenant, but the people we've seen up to this point are clearly old covenant people. We started with Joseph and Mary, both descendants of King David. We met Elizabeth, named after Aaron's wife, Aaron being the first priest in the Old Testament. We met her husband, Zechariah, who's a priest who served at the temple. And we're told that she's going to give birth to John the Baptist, who is really the last Old Testament prophet. And other than the angel Gabriel, everyone we've met has been pretty ordinary. Even in the lengthy genealogy we went through, aside from King David, most of the people highlighted there were poor, oppressed outsiders. And in this passage, we meet Simeon and Anna, two more ordinary people. But these folks are older, and they're wise in spiritual things, and they're devoted to worshiping God. So the story starts with a covenant dedication, a covenant dedication, verses 21 to 24. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now Mary and Joseph, clearly they're following the law. Four times we're told they follow the law. First, and they do what it says for firstborn sons. They have a circumcision ceremony where the covenant sign is applied and his name is given. And while both are significant, I want to focus on Jesus' name because this is what's really different. See, Jesus' name literally means God is salvation. And remember that both Mary and Joseph had been told separately by the angel Gabriel to name the child Jesus. I think how it was presented to Joseph was most significant 
because it says, Matthew 1.21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, meaning God is salvation. For he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Not all people, not any people, but his people. It's a great text to support the doctrine of election, but that's another sermon. He is salvation. He will save his people. And I'm guessing that Mary and Joseph probably talked about this a hundred times. When the time came for Joseph to utter this divinely chosen name, I'm guessing it was emotionally overwhelming to stand there and say, this child shall be called God is salvation. This child, our baby, is our salvation. How about that for an entry in the baby book? We hold in our hands a baby who will be God's salvation for his covenant people. How could we not dedicate him to God? And so again, in obedience to the law, they go up to the temple to do just that, to dedicate their firstborn son to God. But first they have to offer a purification sacrifice for Mary, as was required by the law. And they give here a poor person sacrifice. This offering comes from Leviticus chapter 12. And there it says, When the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. So Mary and Joseph's humble offering is a public declaration of their poverty. And once again, we see that Christianity began and always begins with a state of neediness. We've seen that in virtually everyone who's shown up in the story so far. None of them have it made. God did not and does not come to the self-sufficient. That's a truth that we have to remind ourselves of again and again and again. Even those of us who know Christ and know grace can turn that into our own version of uh, personal prideful adequacy. And it's not only not right, it's not biblical. Our only adequacy is found in Christ. The Apostle Paul reminds us, 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 3, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Mary and Joseph were not chosen because of their status or their achievements, but because of their simplicity and humility. And to drive the point home, when they arrive at the temple, we meet two more simple and humble people, Simeon and Anna, who serve as covenant witnesses. Covenant witnesses, starting at verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, 
Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Then his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And there's a lot of stuff in those verses. I'm going to try to just hit the high points. First, we see there's words of hope. Words of hope. This is the fourth song of Advent we find in the first two chapters of Luke. And now the song is about the hope revealed in the presentation of Jesus. Simeon says, According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. This child was and is God's salvation. And God had promised Simeon that he would not die until he had seen the Savior. And he sings about this salvation being offered to all people. And that's true. The gospel message is offered to all. Though we know that only those in whom the Holy Spirit has been working will respond. But we also know that we have no idea in whom the Holy Spirit works. So the offer is given to everyone. And Simeon makes that clear right at the start of Jesus' life. He sings that he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles, that's most of you, and for glory to your people Israel. Both Jew and Gentile are included here. They sort of have a preview of Galatians 3, which says there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is uh, no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And that's our hope, that we belong to Christ, the Son of God and Savior of sinners. Again, our hope is not in what we can do or what we can say or what we can accomplish, Our hope is not even in what we can believe because that's still depending on us. Our hope is a person, the Lord Jesus. We just heard a profession of faith. And the second vow of those five vows says, you receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. Our hope is a person. As we saw, if you remember back to the book of Titus in November, we read, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's our hope. It's 
Jesus. And Simeon is so blessed by God that he is among the very first people to ever realize that. And imagine how Mary and Joseph's hearts are soaring at hearing these words. Confirmation coming from someone else. But then Simeon has some other words too. And for Mary, these are words of pain. Words of pain. Simeon says... Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. But there's a parenthesis in the middle there at the beginning of verse 35. And it says, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Simeon tells Mary that although she is blessed among women, she is going to know great Pain. The exaltation of the salvation of God brings with it a sword that will pierce your soul. I can only imagine that Mary must have been stunned. Now, we don't often use the words blessed and pain in the same sentence, but it fits. God doesn't promise easy blessings. Some of the blessings that people in the Bible received, and honestly, some of the blessings that people in this room have received, have come about because of great pain in our lives. And once again, we have to face the pain of an inadequate life before we can receive the joy that comes from that one adequate life. Because it's only when we see our inadequacy that we're ready for God's grace. Mary is stunned by these words. But God is still gracious to her. Before she has time even to react, Anna enters, sort of like stage left. And she confirms the earlier words of Simeon and begins to give everyone around them words of redemption. Words of redemption. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So Simeon has just confronted Mary with this shocking reality by saying, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. What terrifying words. Imagine the emotions unleashed in Mary as her thoughts are darting from light and glory to a sword in her soul. But at that moment, God sends Anna, this 84-year-old widow, who began to give thanks to God and speak to him, uh, speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She simply spoke of him and thanked God for him. She doesn't trivialize the sword, but she takes the whole situation into account. She saw the sword in the light of the gospel. So she speaks to Mary of the redeemer and of the redemption he came to accomplish. This older woman spoke words of life that pointed the younger woman to God's glorious deeds and his might and his wonders, all wrapped up in the bundle that's in Mary's arms. Anna spoke of Jesus to a wounded woman 
And Mary listened. She left the temple and fulfilled her mission of mothering the Messiah. When there is a sword in the soul of a younger woman, you ought to find an older woman who is compelled to tell her of Jesus and listen until her heart begins to be thankful for him. How profoundly and wondrously simple. Now, there was a bunch of people around there in the temple. And people must have looked at this group of these two old people, a young couple and a baby, like they're nuts. The old guy is singing. The old woman is telling everyone who would listen that the baby is the Redeemer, come to deliver Jerusalem. It must have been quite a scene. The kind of scene that people walk way around out of fear they might get too close. Who knows what could happen? Actually, the Bible doesn't record what the people around them thought. We have no record of people either rushing up to praise the child or running away. We simply don't know. What we do know is that God blessed two elderly people with a revelation that the Redeemer had come to them in the presence of this little child. What we do know about these two people, Simeon and Anna, that God would choose them for this special blessing. We don't actually know much. The little we know leads me to conclude that Simeon and Anna led lives of contentment. Lives of contentment. This application, I think, goes in a couple of directions. One is <coughs> excuse me, to recognize the fulfillment of all our expectations comes, expectations comes in the person of Christ. However, beyond that, viewing this story from the perspective of 2023, I think Christ's second coming readily comes to mind. We are to anticipate Christ with a similar sense of expectation. Like Simeon, we long to see him with our own eyes, and we treasure the expectation that one day we will see him. Jesus often reinforced that idea in his parables. Time and again, he encouraged us to live in the expectation of his coming. Simeon then is a model of expectant living. His posture of faithful anticipation is one that ought to fundamentally characterize the Christian life. There's little doubt that Simeon and Anna led faithful lives, but I think there are some elements of their faith that enabled them to live contented lives as well. First, from what we can tell, they had a constant faith. As best as we can tell, they're both very elderly. Anna's in her 80s, though some scholars believe the text really says she was widowed for 84 years, not that she was 84. If that's the case, it would put her well over 100 a remarkable age for first century Israel. We're not told how old Simeon is, but since he allows for the Lord to take him, we can safely assume he's an elderly man. We do know they're both faith-filled people, and they probably have been for a long time. Anna stayed at the temple in regular and consistent worship. Simeon is called a righteous man. There is a constancy to their faith that's lasted a long time. <coughs> There's sort of an evenness to their life that only a steadfast faith can bring. 
they have a constant faith. They also have a devout faith. A devout faith. If you're doing the blanks, constant, devout, hungry comes next. My daughter says she listens for that sound when she... They had a devout faith. They really believed what God had said. Anna was a prophetess, someone who declares God's words to other people. (coughs) Simeon received a promise from God. We're not told how, but he fully trusted in that promise. He knew that he would not die until he had seen the Savior. However, like other Old Testament prophets, Hmm. Excuse me. Something feels caught. Like the Old Testament prophets, Simeon believed that what God said, God did. The timing is irrelevant. The timing is unimportant. If God said it, he'll do it. We don't know when. They both have a hungry faith. (coughs) I'm sorry. They really believed that what God was doing was what counted, not what they did, not what anyone else did. They personified the paradox of being profoundly empty. And yet they were profoundly full. For they not only had seen the Savior, They held him in their hands. They've personified the beatitude of Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Simeon and Anna came to God's house hungry, and they received as few have in the history of the world. And finally, they have a patient faith. Patient faith. They've been waiting a long time. Anna's been worshiping in the temple for years and years and years, possibly longer than anyone in this room is old. Not sure how old everybody is, but there aren't many people here that are much older than me. A couple, maybe three. She's been waiting at least as long as I've been old. Simeon says, we're we're told he's waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise. How long? We don't know. But he comes to the temple looking for the promised one of God, and one day, with trembling arms, he lifts the small baby from the startled virgin, and he sings. It's got to be a remarkable sight. He personifies the prophecy of Micah 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So we have Simeon and Anna, these two people who are truly content, for they have a God they can trust, two very old, very content, and now very happy people. Let's go back to verse 29. Taken from the Latin, it's called the Nunc Dimittis which is the opening lines of the song. Nunc dimittis means you now dismiss. 
Now, we probably gain accuracy with the ESV. Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace, but we kind of lose the poetry of the song a little bit. Simeon's been told he'll see the Christ. He's looking into the eyes of this little boy, and now he knows there's nothing left to see or do. He's happy. He's ready to go home to heaven. If I die now, I die in peace. That's a specific reality for Simeon. That will be a reality for each and every one of us someday. We will come to a point where we will have to declare, I'm ready to go home to heaven. I'm ready to see God. If I die now, I die in peace. One of the hardest things when you see somebody is dying and when they're fighting it and saying, no, I can't go, I'm not ready, it's enormously emotional and difficult. I want to be more like Simeon. When that day comes, you're, okay, Lord, here I am. That's a little personal right now. My brother-in-law said those words yesterday. In the hospital, he's not doing well. He may make it, he may not. They took out his breathing tube, and he's apparently breathing, but they said we may have to put it back, and he said no. You need to put it back, just let me go. I am ready to see God. Now it's easy for me to see and hear that from a distance. It's way harder for my sister to be standing there when that's said. So if you remember to pray for her, I'd appreciate it. And for Chuck. But we get this wonderful example of Simeon. You know, most of our culture lives in the fear of death. And yet, for the last 2,000 years, Jesus has been preached around the world. For the last 2,000 years, people have discovered that once they get a glimpse of Jesus, God's salvation, then death is not the great enemy anymore. The world has been overrun by an army of simians having seen Jesus who are ready to die to be martyred if necessary, but ready to step into eternity. And after pondering Luke's account of the birth of the Savior, are we convinced? Has he piled up enough pairs of witnesses to make a simian out of us? By the way, as we're going to see in a couple weeks, he's going to add a second temple visit for Jesus. It will be the only glimpse we get of Jesus between infancy and adulthood. And again in the temple, a pair of people will be looking for him. And again, his greatness and uniqueness will be declared in the temple courts. So where does that leave us? Having seen Jesus, I have seen God's salvation, and now not even death threatens me. Christmas is not just about getting a few hours of peace. The peace of Christmas, peace is not momentary tranquility. It's a peace with our creator so we can enjoy life to the full, a relationship with him, and a peace that leaves us ready to go home whenever God should call. 
Because Luke wants us to see that the Jesus story is not just about him, but also about us. These texts, especially these Christmas stories, where Jesus hasn't done anything yet, reveal God at work. And we see how God approaches people. God takes people who are outsiders and makes them insiders involved in a relationship with the God of the universe who makes them followers of Christ. People who are called to live a life that looks to God because he's poured out his grace on those of us who understand our own inadequacy and that have turned to Christ and received forgiveness and new life. And that's grace, getting what you don't deserve. We are starting a new year tomorrow. And it can be a year where we live contented lives, even though some things may happen that are well beyond our control. Or we can live resentful lives because we don't have that control. It all comes down how we view our own lack of self-sufficiency. We can resent it and get angry and whine and complain, and a whole lot of people will do, and you know many of them. Or we can embrace it because that's the very thing, our lack of self-sufficiency that drives us to Christ and forces us to depend on him. Luke tells the story of how Jesus revealed that grace and the church has to show what that grace looks like, especially when we're not very self-sufficient. And you're not going to be totally self-sufficient. And so Luke introduces us to two folks who are older, and who are wise in spiritual things, and who are devoted to God. One of them, Anna, would like you to know that's why you're here, because you're not self-sufficient and because you need a Savior. And the other one, Simeon, would like you to meet him. That's why he's here, to introduce you to the Savior. And all who have met him said, Amen. Amen. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that. And then I'll close. Let's pray. Dear Lord, it's not quite a week after Christmas. Many of my neighbors already started taking down their lights and trees. It seems we're always in a hurry for the next thing. Traffic never moves fast enough. Waiters don't bring our food soon enough. The mail isn't delivered quick enough. And this year, the after-Christmas sales began two weeks before Christmas. I'm no exception to this hurried way of doing life. And I guess this is one of the reasons I'm so drawn to Simeon. He's a man who seemed to live at a different pace than I do. We know so little about this righteous and devout man, but we do know he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, longing for the arrival of the Messiah, anticipating fulfillment of promises that God alone can keep, hoping to see Jesus. Eight days after your birth, Simeon took you into his arms. Jesus, you by whose arms all things have been made and are sustained, whose arms would be stretched out on a cross 33 years later, Whether or not he expected to die soon, the peace that resulted from that embrace changed everything. Jesus, it's only because you've embraced us in the gospel that we can have the same peace that Simeon experienced. For you are God's promised salvation for Israel, for Gentiles, for us. In you we found the consolation and comfort which can't be found anywhere else. 
You are our forgiveness, our righteousness, our ballast in the storms of life, our sanity in the chaos of relationships, our hope amidst the uncertainties of this world. As we're on the verge of beginning a new year, may the peace of your grace help us to live by the pace of your peace. Jesus, at the end of this Christmas season, by the power of the gospel, slow all of us down. Settle us down, focus us on yourself, focus us for living in the light of the full and final consolation of your second coming. If we're going to be in a hurry about one thing this year, may it be to linger longer in your presence. Everything else will take care of itself. You're not calling us to do a single thing for you, but everything with you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel of your Son. Grant that we would know that we need it. Grant that we would understand it. And grant that we would believe it. In the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.